from GRNE Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. All right. Well, hey. <clears throat> well, hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, this week's episode of What's Up. Uh, What's got, up? got myself, uh, Connor, here. I'm joined with uh, Ryan Sushland and uh, Marie Burquist as well. This week, we're going to be interviewing Mike Casey, the founder of TigerCom. TigerCom is uh, considered uh, one of the leaders in um, kind of com- communicating uh, clean economies and, and marketing and communication. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode. By like commoditization, you mean like of, of energy or of the... Uh... Price, solar panels, price it, pressure. Interesting. Because electricity already kind of exists as a commodity, right? So what is your, what's your strategy Very behind... Much. Like what's yeah. your what's your strategy behind the combating it? Well, the strategy is not combat the commoditization of electricity, which we like. It's the reclaiming brand mm-hmm. among solar OEMs. That's really what we're talking about. Okay. So, okay. Give me a second here. Yeah, so expand on that if you if you wouldn't mind a little bit. Reclaiming the brand, how so? Issued a truncated version via Forbes of a diagnostic on what solar solar wind battery storage what they should have done in the face of michael moore's planet of the humans attack mm-hmm. and we didn't and what and what we should do to prepare for the next one it's it's kind of a subset of a 2100 word piece that i've got kind of it, it'll surface once the 30-day statute of limitations wears off from Forbes, we'll, we'll issue that one, but it's a fuller treatment. So that's in the upper left-hand column. You'll you'll see a reference to it. So that's kind of like our latest and greatest pieces. Sounds like you've definitely been involved with a lot of like the heavy hitters of the industry. Uh, I hope so. I hope so, sir. <laughs> that's always the plan, right? <laughs> yes, sir. In, very much in, in your line of work, that's always the best way to go about it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely am interested in seeing those uh, those slides. We basically did, the, for the first time anybody's done it, we looked at how the 13 top solar panel makers express their value proposition, their brand essence, through their About Us sections on their website and in their taglines. And essentially what we found is that all 13 are selling themselves to the market on some combination of the same seven points. Not, no one does all seven, but all do some of those same seven. And so at the same time, people in the industry are concerned and are complaining about commoditization. So Seth Godin, who is probably the most well-known marketing guru in the country, said, if you are subject to sort by price, you have no brand. You have no brand. So if you're a hotel, if you're an airline, and for your consumers who are just looking for reasonable hotel rates in a room that's not going to have the dumpster emptied at 4.30 in the morning, (laughs) uh, the next morning, you have no brand. So Marriott, Sheridan, Hilton, doesn't really much matter. If you're airlines, even more so, because we're because Expedia and Travelocity are testament that there isn't much of a brand. Now, back when Virgin America was flying before Alaska took over them, I went out of my way to fly Virgin America. They had a brand. So Seth's, um, his contention is that brand is the promise of the experience you will get on your next purchase that thereby justifies paying more than you would to go with somebody else. And right now, we found that very few people in solar have that. Very few. No, I feel like that's definitely something that we've seen. Because, I mean, we're, 
like on a day-to-day operations working with just customers and even we see that like we've we've tried to build our brand a bunch to be kind of that that premium you know that uh that exactly what you're talking about but there is a constant race to the bottom with people because i think people are viewing it in my opinion they view it much the same way that they do like purchasing a television you know you walk into best buy and you're like all right well this one is pretty cheap like it'll do the job like it's got all the ports that i need and then like done when that's really not the case of how it should be going so we've talked greatly about prestige pricing and so we've twisted that into not necessarily the price so we look at one of the main competitors that are selling their modules and their solar systems for like rock bottom pricing. Yes. And but however they have the prestige that you know mm-hmm. you are this innovative early adopter and so we've talked about that a lot that our prestige pricing in our brand to put it in your words is the experience that we're giving people is the knowledge that we're giving people and a lot of the times we are running we run into customers coming to us already knowing what they want because that's the day and age right now so we have to understand what the customer's looking for and then really open up the the conversation to say okay what is piquing their interest actually about this brand is it the name on it or is it the production values that they're getting? Is it the degradation values that they're getting? Um, that's uh, that's our twist on <laughs> branding or prestige pricing, if you will. Yeah, really. I want to strongly encourage you to reach out to Brian Lynch at LG. I will summarize it here for you because it post-pandemic, sorry, they have the definitive mid-pandemic look <laughs> at homeowner attitudes on solar. And what they are finding is that the the gating insight is that the people who are considering going solar now are predominantly what we'll call solar investors. These are people for whom going solar is not a one-time purchase. It is an investment on which they want long-term returns, they're interested in performance, etc. They actually represent 70% of the residential market. Wow. 30% of the market is I'm buying it, I'm putting it up, and I'm forgetting about it. And though there was not a pre-pandemic baseline, the temptation, and I think a valid one, is to view the investor versus buyer ratio to have shifted, perhaps even flipped with the pandemic because in the K-shaped recovery, people who have jobs and are employed but are working from home, they've, they've established a much more integral relationship with their with the structure that they live in because they're living in it so much more than they used to. They're not running around to kids' sports games. They're not going to the office. They're not going on weekends. This represents a significant opportunity because brand matters. This the most the biggest barriers for these homeowners are complexity and confusion. So market education is very important to these buyers and to them, installer websites and manufacturing websites are a core source of information. Therefore, how we're branding as installers and OEMs on our websites and on our social streams become super important, made even more so by the fact that we're having new remote selling. 
So I would strongly encourage you to take check that out because basically, it's it is a it makes the case for a path out of commoditization. For everybody listening out there, the voice that you're hearing right now is the voice of Mr. Mike Casey. He is the uh, founder and head honcho, I believe is probably the best word, <laughs> over at Tigercom. And I think Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, from my research, it looks like probably the best way to classify Tigercom would be. Um, like digital marketing and um, like basically brand awareness slash PR for basically the entire solar industry? Thanks. Close. And let me augment that. We are the U.S.'s top MARCOM, which is short for Marketing Communications and Public Affairs firm that's servicing the clean economy sectors. That's wind, solar, battery storage, pace financing, home sharing, and micromobility. So you really hit all the all the bubbles there. Everything I, I like that the term that you're using there, clean economy, because that's yeah. I feel like that's something that has been in recent terms and something that is very like new and going forward and people finally realizing that there is a clean economy. And I mean, mm-hmm. you even heard it like in the debates the other night, people talking about the clean economy. Sounds like you provi- positioned yourself pretty well. Yeah, we've been in business for 15 years. We are roughly 15 people spread around the country. And because we have worked so long at the intersection of helping clean economy companies succeed in the marketplace, as well as helping them win with both investors and with policymakers, we've had to stay on top of the general trends in marketing and external communications writ large. And then we've had to ask ourselves, how do we apply the general trends and the lessons to companies that we service who are almost always disruptors? They have disruptor budgets and they have disruptor needs. And often, not always, they are not new industries. They are new sectors within industries which have longstanding, dirtier Um, highly oligarchical uh, incumbents that do not want to just yield up market share willingly. So Mm -hmm. they're going to fight like hell to do that, and our job is to help the disruptors win. Hmm. There you go. So um, and on the disruptor market, you work, as you just mentioned to us, with some like LG and Trina, some of the big names kind of in solar. So what would be their disruptor factor, I guess, if you will, to like, I know their, their huge names have been producing for a while. What would you say is either the factor that they have or what you've helped them build so they can be the disruptor? Well, I think a good portion of solar's disruptive ability lies in continuing better cost value ratios and continued excellent commercial execution. So let me restate that a little more succinctly. Solar will continue scaling if it continues at least with the two fundamentals that have driven it to this current point of success, which is continuing to drop costs and continuing to execute commercially on technological advances. Mm. But we've written pretty extensively about what we call the clean economy marketing paradox. Brilliant companies, really smart executive teams, very impressive and inspiring product advances but legacy marketing practices. And to state the overall case as succinctly as I can, the academic marketing literature 
continues to solidify the verdict that Americans, almost regardless of the nature of the purchase, beyond an impulse purchase, are we pulling over at Pete's? Are we pulling it over at Blue Bottle or Starbucks to get a co- coffee? Above that price point, pretty much, of an impulse purchase, Americans are making more and more of the purchase decision online through search and content before they will take or make contact with the seller. What we find in our client companies is uh, a hindrance, a self-imposed hindrance on, on commercial success where they are relying on their sales staff to do the early stage purchase decision education. So at a time early on in a customer's purchase decision where they want to be left alone to search and to sort, we're asking sales staff to kind of barge in and educate the customer themselves instead of working with customer buying trends. And we know that even in B2B industrial sales, which if you're a Vestas, if you're a Trina, you are engaged in that, then let's say it's not 85% of the purchase, but let's say it's 25%. That's still one quarter of the early part of the purchase decision that's being made through online search and content. And that is where a lot of our companies lag and lag quite badly. And there's a number of reasons for that, but essentially it's a product of legacy thinking and over-reliance on on your sales staff as opposed to unburdening them of the things that are better suited through inbound marketing and content marketing practices. So you can leave the sales staff to do the later to mid to later stage conversations that only they can do. From your perspective, this is a conversation that comes up frequently, especially in like the small to medium sized businesses. Can you give a definition of the difference between sales and marketing? Because I think that is a lot of where, like you were saying, the lag is that people are thinking they're one and the same and it's not. That's very, Maria, that's an excellent question. I'm going to at first appear to sidestep the question by answering one you didn't ask and then come back and I promise I'll answer that question. I love it. I love it. It bums me out to say this, but back when I was in graduate school in 1986, which is what would uh, make most of you just a thought at that time. Um, <laughs> the, the, the advertising, marketing, and PR were separate, delineated disciplines. They were professional disciplines that had a reasonable amount of distinction. And what the internet has done in the migration to business and really human communication online has done, it has essentially collapsed the differences in those three professions into search and content. That's not all there is. There is advertising. There is various forms of interruption marketing that are still going on. It would be interesting to see what COVID does to those. But that's not to say that this merger is a complete collapse of those distinctions, but it has moved the three circles much closer together in that Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. So then your question is a meaningful one. How does sales fit into that? And essentially, marketing and sales have become parts of the whole. And I think when you look at any sale as a sales funnel, marketing is increasingly useful at the top of the sales funnel. And the key for B2B companies is that we have a structured, organized handoff from marketing and the intelligence that it should yield if you're engaged in content and inbound marketing with websites that are optimized for inbound 
there is an organized, smart handoff between the intelligence that marketing reaps and actionable steps that sales can take. And the smart companies have them very tightly integrated. Yeah, you're, you're definitely making Marie really happy because Marie, is, as a, a side to her, um, her role here as a producer and co-host, she is also the marketing director for Journey Solar. And so she has been telling us a lot about the differences between sales and marketing. And so you're kind of speaking her exact language that she is uh, nerding out, if you will, on the marketing side of this and how it fits in. I can't tell you the number of times she has told us the exact metaphor that you just said about the funnel. I'm all about the funnel here. <laughs> I'm not usually um, into just like standardizing things, but it's been, that is one of the legacy <laughs> methods that uh, I carried in. And now uh, I've told them also it turned into a bow tie a couple years ago. Um, it's been an inverted funnel, I think, a number of years ago. So there's always trends, but yeah, uh, it's like the food pyramid; it just keeps yeah. changing. Yeah. So, so what, what I'm what I'm hearing is that Marie is actually a shapeshifter. Is that is basically? That what I'm a bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. basically it. Well, good, good news, Marie. I just got off the phone with your boss before the show, and and I was successful in recommending a three x increase in your marketing budget there at the company. So Ooh, let's all go. Right, there you go. Let's yeah, go. Just, just, I just need a, I need a ten percent kickback a month, and we're good to go. All right. Not Deal. a problem. That's Not nothing. a problem. <laughs> um, so before we go a little bit more like in depth, because there's a wealth of information here, give me just a little bit of background. What was your, like, how did you get into renewables? And then where was the point where you said, all right, I recognize that there is a, a miss in the legacy marketing is going on in the clean economy. And then how did you decide that you were going to be the one to fill that hole? And then how did you, basically, what's the inspiration behind TigerCom? How long do you have? <laughs> as long as you have. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll, um, I'm raising two teenagers, both of whom are, have electronically inspired chronic impatience. And I'm often told that, Dad, you, you're too long-winded in your answers. So I'm just <laughs> coming from that very chastened environment. I'll try to make it quick. But uh, let's see if we can keep it under 90 seconds. In short, this firm I founded and I run was born, unbeknownst to me, in 1982, I read as my first textbook the book The 29th Day by Lester Brown, who was at the time the premier environmental trends counter on the planet. I believe he's still alive. And essentially, he, and his, in this book and his many other books, made the case that we are living off the, we're eating our seed corn instead of what we're harvesting. And we're treating the, toil, the, the pantry like a toilet from an ecological standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I decided I would spend the rest of my life trying to address global unsustainability in some way, shape, or form. I spent the first 10 years of my career in politics. I was a spokesman for elected officials and candidates at the local, state, and federal level. And after 10 years, roughly, I went into the environmental and conservation community, and I built and ran the communications operations for two different national groups. Along the way, I had three realizations. One, we were trying to beat something with nothing. We did not have a viable clean economy narrative. So we were against coal, but we didn't have something that we could point to that we were for mm. as a viable substitute. Um, number two, we didn't have infrastructure to deliver that narrative. The trade associations were nascent and weak. The think tanks were few and far between. And third, we had what I called an attitude and skills gap. We we brought plastic forks to knife fights. And that's kind of what the, the, the Forbes piece that PV Magazine 
uh, reference today mentioned is essentially we still in clean economy, there's far too much conflict aversion and magical thinking that goes into the denial that we are in a full contact sport called market disruption. And the other side has had decades, 70, 80, 90, 100 years with generations of executive leadership preparing themselves to weaponize government and propaganda to, to hold on to their market share, even though it's a global disservice. So I began to think of how can I, as one person, address that and deductively got down to starting a firm that would try to embody the fixes to these three problems that I saw as a nonprofit advocate. So essentially, I went into talking about the problem to talking about the solutions. And over 15 years, we be, we really stuck with it. It was our singular focus. And the Great Recession saw the exit of a lot of larger firms. We stayed up in the clean tech mountains, took up more real estate. It was a fairly thin existence for a while, but mm-hmm. we lived through that winter with our ribs showing, but we did <laughs> emerge as the top player. And... Since then, we've been able to draw from the political and advocacy backgrounds of many of our staff members, including myself, to bring a much edgier, proactive, and systematic approach to public case-making, whether it's to customers or investors or policymakers. So definitely, I think you guys, it sounds like, have benefited quite a bit from... I want to say the the clean revolution that I guess has probably happened in the last I don't know five ish years, right? That it's from the time basically of the recession where, you know, I because I can remember being in school and thinking about like uh, solar and wind and it's just something that you see kind of very sparingly, but uh-huh. but then so what was what was the process like to kind of ride that wave of of you seeing it? You know, is there like a direct involvement there or is you know what? How is how has that changed in the last couple of years? You know, as a as a boxing coach once told me, you will stumble your way to success, and I think that's a perfect thumbnail for the experience of clean economy scaling since the first year of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what we talked about. Is he, he thankfully President Obama and his staff used the Great Recession to, to catalyze a recovery that was that really began to accelerate clean tech expansion. And I think it made it cool in tech circles to go work in clean tech. And I think we've seen clean tech become go from clean tech to clean energy and clean energy to clean economy. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, I think that's that's the that's the terminology that's the um, that's the semantic evolution is clean tech to clean energy, clean energy to clean economy. And it's become a much more attractive place to come work. And I, as an employer, you know, 15 years ago when I started the firm, I had to talk open-minded people into the idea that you could become a clean economy communicator as a daily job. Now I have people coming to me saying, I want to do what you do for a living. That is a sign of real progress. It's you know it's, it's an obscure metric, but in my world, it's a telling one. I, I I love that actually because I you're I think you hit the nail right in the head that like uh, 15 years ago, 
clean tech was they're making cars slightly more efficient. And mm-hmm. and now it's this entire like thing that exists. I mean, all the three of us that are sitting here talking to you today are all existing because we made that same jump that people are making for your business and exactly. saying we want to go work in it. Connor and I myself, like the two of us attended school and had our, our degrees in renewable energy, which fifteen years ago didn't exist. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it's 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 fantastic. I mean, graduating the last few years here and really starting our careers in clean energy, you know, even in these past few years, we've seen just such a big growth, uh, whether it's just in the Illinois market or whether it's, you know, federal. And and don't think just because you all three live in Chicago, you can any of you can address me as grandpa during this call. Cause you'll be a big <laughs> Believe me, I'm much older than them. So <laughs> what, what, tw- 29? Yeah, no, right. I'm uh, up in the 30s here <laughs> listen, listen listen young lady i don't want to hear anything out of you so that's experience so i actually i i latched on to you because you worked in in political campaigns which to me has been one of the biggest changes in uh, in energy as well because i mean probably when you were doing that the view on energy was still a very i guess you can almost call it archaic because it was still the old the old forms of energy, the dirty forms of it, was clean energy and clean, like the clean economy, something you always had in your mind that you were were pushing in those campaigns, or how is like how has that view changed over your time in politics? That's a, that's a really good question. I think so. I'm going to give a broader answer than the question that triggered it, and it's not going to be the most optimistic answer. But <laughs> we have. As, as the four of us sit here now on planet Earth, 7.3 billion of us on this rotating globe, <clears throat> there are over a half a dozen horsemen of the uh, unsustainability apocalypse. We work to address only one of them, which is global climate disruption, which in my view is the term we should use for this. And if I could go back 30 years and talk to my colleagues back then, we would never have used the term greenhouse gases or emissions or global warming or climate change. Those are terms the oil industry loves us using because they're nondescript, not very emotionally connective terms. We should have called it global climate disruption because that's what it is. We would be able to own correctly the hot stuff, the windy stuff, the dry stuff, and the cold stuff, you know, all of it. Yeah. And we just, it, it, the problem with our side is that we've way too long let the inmates run the asylum. We've let lawyers and wonks message, and they're terrible at it. It's not what they're trained to do. <laughs> and no matter how much they kid themselves, they still stink at it. We should never let them near the messaging controls. <laughs> but anyway, be that as it may. Um, but we should step back more broadly and see that we, here are the other horsemen. There's overpopulation. I know it's very fashionable in woke circles to not talk about that because it brings up um, Tuskegee experiments, but that's not what we're talking about here. You cannot get around the fact that we have way more human beings on the planet than than the the pantry can feed, just Mm -hmm. full stop. And there's no amount of geoengineering or biotech you can introduce sans consequences that are going to fix that. Third, we have desertification and the loss of topsoil. And this is critical because we're just, we're letting, you know, back in the 1930s, we saw, you know, probably seven of nine feet of your average topsoil deposits in North America get blown away 
in the Dust Bowl? Well, that just happens all over the place. So you have the spread of deserts and a loss of arable land. <clears throat> then you have the toxification of the biosphere. This is most acutely seen these days in the finding of microplastics in human guts. But it goes back further. So I don't know if you've heard of the movie uh, Dark Water with Mark Ruffalo, but I actually, there's a, there's a scene in there that shows a, a guy at the gas station that Mark Ruffalo sees, and he's a, he's a guy with a very severe face deformity. His actual name in life is Bucky Bailey, okay. and I know him because I represented him. Really? And um, essentially, that is a story of DuPont and 3M coming up with perfluorochemicals in the 1920s, finding that they have the geologic stability of rocks and being water and grease repellent, and then putting them in everything. The Statue of Liberty, Chinese food boxes, Starbucks coffee cups, Teflon pots, post-it notes, on and on and on. Whoops, we just found out that it's carcinogenic and it clings to human tissue. Mm -hmm. Now, every single child born on planet Earth is born pre-polluted. Yanomani Indians, Inuit children, Bedouin kids, uncontacted tribes, it does not matter. Everybody, all of us listening and all of us on this conversation have perfluoral chemicals in us and they will never break down. So we're just, we're very casual about what we dump out of the environment because we have this idea that there's actually an away and throw away and there isn't. We also have the flattening of the biota and this is fairly important. We're taking specialty species that, that are, that um, survive in very niche environments and we're flattening them out, basically replacing them with cockroaches and pigeons and coyotes. And nothing wrong with those, those creatures, but we just recognize that we're doing that. And then we are drying up water supplies. Like you've got large population countries that are living off fossilized aquifers that do not get refreshed. And that's not going to end well. So together, these all fit together and they're compounding each other. And yet there's money to solve them in only one of those. Now, Confucius said, better to light one candle than the curse of the darkness. It's one of my two favorite Confucian sayings. And we are, the happy news is that we, and those of, those of your audience members who work in clean economy, we have agency. We get to get up every day and get paid to try to address this problem in some small or medium-sized way. But we should be clear that we are... In, in the, your question was on the arc of politics. And what I've noticed is that we have growing awareness, lagging but growing action, but rapidly dwindling time. And I don't know how we're going to do, but I know we got to start bailing water even faster. Yeah, something's got to change, I mean, which is good, right? Because I mean, yes. that, even that whole list is so, you're exactly right, it compounds on each other. That it's, yep. you, it's not like you can point, like I wrote down all the things you, you said, there's not one that you can point to that says, hey, let's solve this problem and the rest of them all solve. It's like, I'm glad there was a, a bright point in there because it gets a little yeah. bit depressing when you start thinking about everything. But, you know, that's, uh, I'm glad that you did include the bright point that there are people doing things about this, uh, the four of us included, that, you know, we're, we're trying our best, which I guess at the end of the day is the most you can do, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, my, the other one I really like is um, those who say something cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. Ooh. 
And I, I like, like that. that because, you know, the, the Jim Inhoffs, the Exxon Mobiles of the world, their, their reaction to the rise of clean economy disruptors is a very predictable pattern. They start by saying, well, actually what we're offering is good for you. And then they'll start saying, well, okay, well, maybe it's not good for you, but it's benign and it doesn't cause any harm. And then they say, well, the harm is not that much. And then they move to the solutions that are being offered are too expensive. We should study them for the next 150 years. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, well, those solutions suck. Well, we can come up with better solutions. And then they'll say, well, we're, we're part of the solution, right? It's this very, very reliable pattern. If you look at Naomi Oreskes' book, The Merchants of Doubt, there's a whole, literally a, a good chunk of the $9 billion a year influence peddling industry that's largely headquartered here is, is designed to support what I call that shrinking island strategy. You know, just stay on the island, keep, keep pulling money out of it as much as you can for as long as you can, and then bail off the last possible second. It's, it's a stupid strategy, but it's, it's a nurture born. Yeah, it's, it's one that's been going on forever. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is I'm I'm finishing up a book called The Polluters. It's a study of the chemical lobby. Okay. And it's very interesting. They back, you know, in the 1890s, the 19 aughts, the 19 teens, they were essentially doing the same things then that they're doing now, which is we'll study the hell out of stuff, we'll slow walk everything, etc. It's just a tried and true strategy. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, I guess, but the problem is it is broke and they don't want to fix it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it always turns into somebody else's problem. Like even with the two gas companies you're talking about, ExxonMobil, like they come out with different reports, different ways to twist things. But then it's always, well, it's, you know, somebody else's problem because in 150 years, there'll be new technology. Right. Um, right. We'll just kick the can down the road right, like we have been. Right. right. Huh. It's, it's, a, it's an unwillingness to put in the work to solve our own problems. Mm-hmm. And that is ironic because most of the time, those who are espousing kick-the-can strategies are very quick to scold clean economy for being um, policy-dependent. Now, you know, I, this is a, we could do a whole podcast on this yeah, alone, right. but it's one of my, it's one of my most um, – it's one of the things that most reliably enrages me. Anybody who's following me on LinkedIn can see, you know, probably three times a week, I'm, I'm uh, harshing on the fossil fuel lobby for being at the trough. You know, they, they love, during Solyndra, the phony Solyndra scandal, these guys yammered on and on and on about how government, we, that clean energy was a government creation. And it was beneath the dignity of a superpower to not mine and um, dig for its own energy. Well, Here's the thing. The oil, coal, and gas industries had been at the government trough for at least 100 years, and coal case has been there for 200 years. Yeah. And, and our financial relationship to the fossil fuel lobby is a lot like it would be if I, if, if I owned the house next to me and I rented it and I rented it to a bunch of college guys who, and I didn't ask them for any security deposit, I gave it to them at below market rates, and I let them have parties and beat the crap out of the house, and then I said, hey, you know what, boys, when you're all hungover and asleep, I'll come over and sweep up the bottles and clean up after you. And by the way, we'll, 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 we'll make sure we'll advertise for your parties. Is there anything else we can do for you? Like, it's, it's, it's a fundamentally stupid relationship we've got with fossil fuels, <laughs> you know, and you think about it, so like, it, did, you, did you know, for example... 
that part of your tax money goes to underwrite something called the Department of Energy F- Office of Fossil Fuels. And if you go, if you ask them, as we have for, for our Scaling Clean blog, hey, Office of Fossil Fuels, what do you guys do with our money? They'll probably say, well, we came up with the technology for fracking. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second here. So you're telling me you took my money and you underwrote the development of the technology that enabled the, the shale, quote, revolution, which, by the way, contaminates groundwater supplies one third of the time. Every, every third fracking site that gets drilled is going to leak toxic fracking chemicals into water supplies. One yeah. third. Yeah. Not so, to mention the seismic activity change, too. Right. So, you I mean, like, just square that up with me here, guys. So if, you, if you're the buy the bootstraps, oil fields, wildcat or big macho guys wearing your boots and voting for Trump, like, you know, look, man, just man up here. Get off the government dole and pay your own way. Get your hands out of my pocket. And I think my to bring this back to here to to clean economy communications. One of the things that I think would be really important for us to do is to try, is to work to inject truth into the cost conversation. And we should call BS on these fossil fuel clowns who keep wagging their finger at us for being on the dole. Let's look at what's happening in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I by the website, I think you, I don't know if you guys sell in Ohio or not, but Ohio has just seen the outbreak of a $61 million bribery scandal <laughs> where First Energy and Murray Energy, right? So, the, the dirtiest utility in Ohio, located in Northeast Ohio, serviced where the, the neighborhood I grew up, and the coal company in the southern part of the state that dug up the stuff that First Energy burned, these two jerks teamed up to bribe Ohio politicians in the Republican caucus and political operatives of both parties to bail coal and nuclear plants out because they couldn't compete anymore. So tell me how that squares with the charge that solar and wind are Al Gore beta male uh, creations of government spending. How does that square? It certainly, we, it, it certainly isn't very free market of them, that's for sure. No, yeah. it's, right? You know, it's like the thing you hear from all the time is standing on your own two feet. It's like, well, okay, hold on a second. So if policy support is a sign of immaturity, then the coal industry is the oldest toddler in world history it's a 250 year old toddler right it's still pooping its own pants you know and the gas industry is the oil industry has been getting government largesse since you know rockefeller was drilling drilling holes in the ground i mean and the sad and the sad thing is this information is is easily available i mean you go online and you look up you know how much uh, oil and gas and fracking receives in federal and and you know state subsidies each year and it's astounding. Yeah, it's astounding. this has been going on for like a long time too yeah you compound that over 100 years and whew there's a guy named Dub. There's a guy named Dub Coplo, and he runs something called Earth Track. Tracks with a T R A K. He is a brilliant guy, and he is, I think, the one of the world's foremost subsidy counters. And you know, he, he like, it's astounding. He's never been funded to do a complete census of the amount of tax money that gets shoveled every year at these at these market incumbents that long ago were mature enough and profitable enough they get their hands out of our pockets. But my my point is. If you listen to the zeitgeist of clean economy conversations, what we are doing now is the edgiest version of it. And, okay, I'm not F-bombing in this conversation because we want it suitable for kids. But (laughs) my point is, why isn't everybody in clean economy 
being aggressive and edgy at pushing back against patent BS that's being used against us to slow our market ascension. That's crazy. The other side's trying to hold their head underwater. Why aren't we knocking their hand away? You know, and it's just, there's a lot of, in my experience over 15 years of sitting in plenty of conference calls, meeting rooms, I've seen so many proactive, effective strategies knocked down or muted because somebody got cold feet because they, really it's just conflict aversion masquerading a strategy. And it's, you know, look, if if you want to win in the marketplace, just by being nice people, start a new Google. Yeah. Right? Because Google's, Google did not displace anybody overtly and directly. They ended up displacing tons of people, tons of companies. But at the time, they were just an internet search engine. Solar is dis- is directly displacing the gas industry, which now, by the way, has, is really the oil industry. Because the oil industry has gone from transportation into electrons. Right. And they want to have the ele- their electrons be powering our homes and devices and this sort of thing. And we need to get that. It's a it's a fundamental feature of our Marcom landscape, and we cannot. It will not go away because we want it to. I love it. But I think a lot of that is. So I wrote down your your three points of beat something with nothing, and I think it's a lot easier for smaller size companies, which a lot of these solar companies. I mean. We're eight years old um, at GRNE, and we're considered like geriatric in the industry, <laughs> at least in <laughs> Illinois, let's say. Um, so for a lot of small companies, it's very intimidating and thinking about the amount of resources to put into a role like, say, a policy advocate or a lobbyist, that's just not a role that people are thinking can be brought into fruition. And then, of course, that's the domino effect to the rest of the list of lack of infrastructure um, and then a skills gap. I mean, we do lobby week every year to promote the solar uh, what policies for Illinois. Yeah, right. Um, Upcoming legislation. This is the third time that myself has personally done it. Connor and Ryan have done it, you know, two or three times. Every single time we're sitting in front of these representatives, they're telling us there's so many bills talking about this. Why can't you guys all get together? So there's also that in inner workings of competition going on as well yeah, at the mm-hmm. lobbyist level where it's like, we're confusing people and we're all going after the same thing. <laughs> right. Yes. The, so a, a couple of things for your listeners. First, I don't want a company listening to this, a comp- somebody who owns a company listening to this who is the size of your company to think, okay, so this, this, this clown is on here saying, I got to take on Exxon Mobil. No, you don't. <laughs> That's not, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm saying that there, there's three or four core principles, which are rarely applied and are universally applicable. And we should close the gap between applicability and deployment. And the good news is that they're good for your business. It's good for your business to do this. So what are those principles? First, we need to stop relying on our sales staff to do the job of marketers. Marketers' job is to work the top of the sales funnel and set up, conduct their work in a way to collect market intelligence that hands off meaningful insights to the sales staff to help them succeed. Our job is a downfield block for the sales staff. Mm-hmm. 
full stop. And we do that through content and search. Content is not box checking Instagram photos of take your dog to work day. Content is telling your customer, telling the customer something about themselves that's useful and they did not know before. It's an insight. So as a kind of a guru in the cottage industry of people who coach owners of professional service firms like me, this guy named David Baker, he's a brilliant man, and he has a saying, no one's reading your newsletter. And what he really means by that is don't put out content, offer insights, be useful. So if you are useful, you become a go-to resource for customers who 97% of the time are not ready to buy from you, but would like to be informed by you. So then when they go from their 97% to 3%, they're ready to buy. Guess who they are going to turn to because you've been relevant in their world. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is good for every single clean economy business that I can think of, save for like one or two. There's one friend of mine runs a, runs a company called TPI Composites, um, and he, it, several years ago, he had literally six customers. Steve makes the stuff, his company makes the stuff that goes into wind turbine blades. There's only six companies in the world that make wind turbines, and he can, he can retail market to all of them. Now that he's a public company, you know, there's a different case, but, you know, apart from a few of those, everybody else, whether you're B2C or B2B, you profit by applying the standard because we stop veering away from customer buying trends and we adhere to them and work with where our customers are going. So that's first. Number two is to understand, are you a new sector within an existing industry or are you a new industry? If you are Lime or Bird or Bolt, the micromobility companies, you are not disrupting any industry right now, apart from the taxi cab industry, I suppose. <laughs> but most people aren't going to take a taxi cab to ride 10 blocks. Right. You know, so it's, there's really not a clean, clear disruption. If you're, if you're a cannabis grower, medical cannabis grower, I guess you're disrupting the, the drug industry kind of, sort of, but not really. Cause most people are want, they want CBD oils yeah. Whether to in a tincture or in their donuts, you know, it's, it's a new, those are new industries. If we're in the solar business or if you're in the wind business, you are definitely a new sector within the energy industry and you are playing full contact. And this has some significant ramifications for how you do your public case making. <clears throat> I would say an additional principle here is to favor concise, compelling communications to customers that relate at the emotional level. What we know from the mid-2000s social science research and marketing research is, it, is it's confirmed what you know um, Don Draper knew in Mad Men many years ago, which is people are not rational buyers. They're emotional buyers first, rational buyers second. So if we can connect at the emotional level to people's existing values, self-interest, and beliefs, then we can open up the possibility of making a more metric case. But if you look at the typical clean economy marketing materials, they are dense and they're boring. They're really boring. And who the hell wants to read that stuff? So getting it 
having having a structured, measured, systemic approach to coming up with emotionally connected materials to make your case to customers is of paramount importance, regardless of how large your large a ticket price you're selling, and how long and how technical the sales is and its its involvement. So, if, so these are universal principles, and they can be applied to a company your size. It can be applied to Chuck with a truck, uh, you know, owner, operator, installer, and it can be applied to Vestas or Trina. Applied at all levels. So, from what I'm hearing, at least, it kind of sounds like your thought on this is that one of the biggest challenges facing people in this nascent industry of ours is that it sounds like that not only B two C but B two B also are approaching their consumers in the wrong fashion. Correct. What, so what would your take be then on what is an industry that had this problem, change that, that then now the clean economy can model itself off of? That's a good question. And we, I can answer that in a summary way, not in a meaningful and in-depth way in this context. But I would encourage you, if, if you want to see our best answer at that, I'd encourage you to go on Scaling Clean which, or go to tirecom.us and look for insights. And if you just do a search on no time for legacy, it's our signature thought leadership analysis piece. Mm-hmm. And it has a chart, a comparison chart that answers exactly that question. But in essence, if you're a B2B company, you are marketing to dozens hundreds or thousands. You are not Amazon that's marketing to tens of millions or hundreds of millions. And so in the in that in no time for legacy, we basically put the entire US economy on a number line. At one end were the digital only pure play B2C retailers with point of purchase websites, Amazon, Thrive Market, which is a, a non produce offering grocery store service that rivals Whole Foods. They're just online. Okay. If those guys don't do digital well, they never would have started, they never would have grown, and if they stopped doing it well, they would die immediately. At the very other end of the spectrum are industrial B2B equipment and services sales. And those folks haven't had the historical imperative to get digital right. In between are a whole lot of steps. Like So going from, our, from the first end, the Thrive and the Amazon, um, and one step over is, let's say, like Macy's. Now, this is pre-COVID, and Macy's, I don't think, is probably do- doing so well right now. <laughs> but, you know, I'm as I speak, I'm wearing a shirt that I bought from Macy's.com. I'm wearing a pair of pants that I bought at Macy's store. And so they're a hybrid. They're online and they're bricks and mortar. That's true for car companies. So you can, you know, Tesla's, you can buy a car from them. Uh, Rivian is, or, or Canoe, um, it, it's online only. There's no Canoe store you can go into. It's going to be completely um, uh, no obligation leases. You actually can't, will not be able to buy a car from Canoe when they start selling. Rivian, I think, will be in online sales only. They won't have showrooms, not going to have obnoxious salespeople, et cetera. But Ford is a hybrid. You can build your own truck. You build your own F-150 model, color, make, features, model, et cetera, et cetera. You can build it all online and order it and go pick it up at the store and haggle with the price if you want. So the point the point of the number line is not to, is not an academic exercise to say that most of the thinking, 
most of the brain power the last 20 years of, of online marketing has been almost entirely down at the B2C zone with point-of-purchase websites because that's where the money was. That's where you got the best digital marketers, et cetera. And what we are trying to do as a firm is help people in the mid point of the spectrum and the the other far end of the spectrum adopt to their particular needs the best practices that can be borrowed from the B2C guys. The B2C folks are doing it, point of purchase websites are doing it well by necessity. We need to learn from them, but we need to do it with with an adapter's eye. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So it's almost like we need to get an online model for Correct. solar to be able to say, Correct. here is here's what you're getting. Here is all the, the bits and pieces, all the information, and essentially leave it to a customer to, much like they would with a car, design the system that they want. Yes. And then basically have, you know, call into the, the store and say, this is, this is what I want. And then just confirm the details. Exactly. So, you know, I'm I'm on the I'm on the canoe registration list because I'm driving a um, a beat up old 16 year Honda Element. There you go. And <laughs> and I'm on the canoes list. Uh, canoes list and canoe is interacting with me online. I'm not if canoe had vehicles available, I probably wouldn't subscribe right now because I like my Element. Yeah. But when that thing finally dies by the side of the road and gets towed by AAA, I'm ready. And <laughs> canoe has kept me busy interacting with their new cool stuff. So they're keeping me as a 97 percenter mm-hmm. engaged with them. It's when I flip to being a three percenter. I'm ready to buy. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to lease. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. And and I think what's paramount on that is we have to have we have to move clean economy marketing, whether it's B2B or B2C. We've got to move it into the zone of much greater user friendliness than it is now. Do you think that change in the buying trend and customer trend, is that more generational or is that technology driven? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that is probably actually the right answer to that question because it's, it's generational, whereas people on the younger side have grown up with this technology, but the access to the technology is making everybody look and see that there are better options. Like case in point, my aunt and uncle came to my house the other night because they just purchased a new car. And one of the first things they told me was that they were online, they did all of their research, they walked into the store and said, this is exactly what I want. Yeah, and so I do think we, by and large, digital immigrants are still calling the shots at most companies when they need to be acting, they need to have programs that have the acumen of digital natives. I'm a digital immigrant. You all are digital natives. You grew up. You grew, my, literally, my career started pre-internet. And there's there's nothing wrong. There's nothing bad about being a digital immigrant. In fact, I have found in my career there are advantages. And in particular, because because legacy practices are not dead, and they have not lost all effectiveness, and they haven't lost any place in the smart Marcom uh, program. I'm able to see how the new, the relatively newer techniques and platforms can be wisely integrated. However, I think that I have to work extra hard to understand what's the right mixture of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn for a particular client. I've got to work extra hard because 
these are not, they didn't shape my upbringing like they shaped your upbringing. So it's all good. You know, either way is fine. And likewise, digital natives who are, who are up and comer, clean economy marketers, they need to take a broader perspective. They can't think the, the, the whatever boomer is, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's not doing you any favors. If that's your view, I, you know, yeah, 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 whatever. Just move out of the room. And we'll get the work done. No, because it overlooks really important things that, that are standing the test of time. So, Mike, we are almost at time, but before we let you go... Mike, we're definitely going to have to do more episodes because I feel like we could have another two hours of just conversation yeah, with absolutely. you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there, yeah. Is, there is so much info here. Um, so we want to be respectful of your time, too. But, uh, you know, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and definitely... We will be back in touch for part two because I, there's just so much that we can cover in this space. Um, Thank you. Thank you. That's yeah. very kind of you. Yeah. It, it, so it's definitely been a pleasure to uh, to have you on. Likewise. Well, let me say this. I, I want to thank you. Thank the three of you for suiting up on my team. Uh, I, I'm being I'm being inappropriately possessive in that <laughs> with that uh, pronoun. But, uh, you know, I, I've been at I've had shoulder of the wheel now for 35 years. And, I, and when I when I turn I'm 56 now, when I turn 50, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The The Outliers, where he talks about at the 10,000-hour mark of intentional practice on a craft, a musical instrument, a sport, an art form, you you are in the zone of achieving mastery. I did the back of the envelope calculation that I and I, and I found that I was at 65,000 hours. <laughs> wow. Which was pretty sober. <laughs> Maybe a sign that I should be heading to the old folks' home. But I, one of the things in this time of increasingly dire long-term prospects that I find really uplifting is the growth in brilliant, talented, committed people who are putting on the clean economy transformation uniform and jumping onto the field. And you three have done this, and... I want to thank you for it because we need as many people pulling oars on the galley as absolutely possible or we are not going to get make it to port. So thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for doing this podcast. I know because I do a lot of podcast interviews. The podcasts are, are a labor of love. They're not a labor of – unless you're Joe Rogan getting paid $100 <laughs> million bucks from Spotify. You I know, wish. It, 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 it's, <laughs> Someday. Yeah, me, t- me too. But you know what I mean? Like it, it's – I get it. And you guys are really, you're going the extra mile with this and you are doing for your company what I'm advocating other companies do. You are, you are out harvesting insights and paying it forward and this will be good for your business. We appreciate that, yeah. Mike. We're happy to be on your team too. Yeah, thank you for all yeah. the, uh, the insight you've provided today. Absolutely. Of course. Let's, so let's, let's let's make Darren Woods the uh, ExxonMobil CEO. Let's make him as unhappy as possible. Let's do it. <laughs> let's maybe, do maybe, it. Maybe, maybe he can be your maybe he can be your summer intern in about five years. Right. I, I would there love we go. That. I would love that. Uh, so uh, anyone wants to learn more, you can obviously go and search for Tigercom. You find Mike. Uh, make sure you connect with him. He's a wealth of info. And then you can also find Journey Solar in the WhatsApp podcast, JourneySolar.com. Uh, search for us, and, and I'm sure you search for Tigercom also on all your social media platforms. Uh, make sure you guys get involved, and thanks for tuning in today for us to tell you what's up.